Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kimberly Conyers. We're at Cafe Newberry in Portland. It's June 8th, 2021. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Uh, first question, as you know, is why wine? Oh, for the love of wine. Oh my gosh. Um, well, I'll give you a little bit of the background so, so you can understand how I got to where I'm at, which is a, a wine distributor now called Bitcork. Um, so when I was 12, I started picking strawberries, so I guess that's where maybe the farming side of me started. Um, that was my summer job, and then also during the summer I'd go and, and work at my uncle's restaurant. I started busting tables there, so that's where the restaurant side came in. So I think some seeds were planted, and then you know, fast forward into my um, my young adult life. Um, at the age of 20, I started as a pharmaceutical buyer for all the Payless drugstores, and that was a that was a great job for a young person. Um, I was buying for 1,150 stores five distribution centers, but at nighttime, I worked at a really nice restaurant in Lake Oswego called Ricardo's. And I really, really enjoyed working in the restaurant. I mean, the buyer position was really a good job for somebody of my age, but um, four nights a week at Ricardo's, and especially working for a family restaurant and sitting down at the end of the night and having three, four course meals paired with Italian wines, big reds, and mind you, I was just barely 21. So at a really young age, I, I was introduced to some incredibly good wine. And I, you know, I mean, most times, um, the younger people will, will gravitate towards the Rieslings or the sweeter wines, you know, I, I want to call that the, the gateway wine. Um, but the more I learned about these Italian wines and the food pairing, the more I really, 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 really wanted to dive into it. Uh, I was born in McBinville. So obviously, um, Oregon wine, uh, through my journey, I, I just, I wanted to know everything about it. So nine, that was nine years. And then I got out on the buyers, or I got out of my buyer's position and got into sales because I had so many uh, pharmaceutical reps say, you know, you're such an extrovert <laughs> and you should be on the other side of the desk. And so here I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm 29, I'm not getting any younger, I better make a career change right now while I still can. And I look back now and go, you were just a kid. So um, my first sales job was actually uh, with Frito-Lay. Now, mind you, um, I was very, very, very active um, as a runner. Uh, ran with a couple of the Nike teams. And Frito-Lay was a really good training grounds for me to get on the, the sell side of things. But bottom line is, is 
I really didn't eat Doritos. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to promote something I believed in. So at that time, I went to a small wine distributor. It was back in the day, it was called McClaskey's. And um, I started selling wine. And, um, and the more I learned about those wines, the more I wanted to dive into them. And as the distribution chain um, kept changing, um, for example, uh, McClaskey got bought out by Mount Hood Beverage, so I worked for them as well, and they were much bigger. They had beer and wine, um, and it, that was a really interesting time of my life because um, it, at that time it was still very much a, 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 a man's world. And there's, a re there's, there's many reasons for that on the distribution side. They have changed quite a bit now, but um, when I was there, I met uh, some very powerful women. There was only a few women there. Um, like I say, um, and, and part of the reason it was more of a man's world in the distribution is because you literally had to be able to handle a half barrel keg or a six barrel keg, and those are pretty heavy. So the work was, you know, not all women could handle that. So, but on that journey, I met Sarah Graves. She is a powerhouse, one to be reckoned with. She is now a lifetime coach. Uh, Sue Martinez, who another just amazing, incredible, strong woman. Um, Sue Baltus. And these three women were there, and there was times that I wanted to give up because it was a man's world. It was tough work. Um, but they encouraged me, and I stuck with it. And then, um, as time went on, like I said, the, the, the smaller distributors kept getting bought out by the bigger distributors. Um, Mount Hood now is Southern. Um, several years ago, I worked for General Distributors as a wine um, brand manager, which at that time, I remember seeing the interview with uh, Ariel from uh, um, Yeah, Mihal Vineyards, yeah, and uh, we were working together, um, and that was a really an interesting thing trying to train 52 beer guys how to sell wine and I remember in Ariel's interview she talked about being with a beer distributor that was that was us <laughs> um, but yeah it's kind of a, a tough deal trying to train Coors Light salespeople into wine but it was it was a, a really good journey there and then Columbia bought out General so as I'm I, alluding to is it's just been one of those things that it's been um, you know the bigger distributors if you go back and look at Oregon when we first started basically 60 years ago the ratio distributor to supplier it was about a 50 50 and so um, it, 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 I feel like it was a real even playing field fast forward now there's only a few distributors and there's thousands of brands that we are competing with and so it's um, the distribution side is probably I, I want to say after my background with restaurant retail supplier rep distributor rep um, being on the side of you know helping make wine helping with harvest training students um, I really want to say the distribution side it's it's it's, it's it, there's no seasonality it's year-round. Um, 
And again, it's just because there's so many, so many brands out there. But that's kind of in a nutshell how I got started and, um, you know, evolved into the distribution side. Uh, yeah. Tell me about, you, you mentioned like your kind of early wine education as being at a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and learning about it that way. Once you got into getting more into wine, especially getting into wine, what about learning wine? What was your wine education process like? Yeah, very, very, very good question. Um, when you work for a distributor, uh, you are going to be representing a lot of brands and beer and Red Bull and cider and whatever else that is in your portfolio. So um, to learn about all these different wines, it really, really, I mean, thank goodness there's, there's programs like, you know, Schumacher, there's programs like Linfield College. There's so much education and information at your fingertips now. Um, but it is, it's an ever, you just keep learning. And I know the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know anything about wine. When I work with servers, it's really interesting how um, wine seems to be intimidating. And it's just like, it's, at the end of the day, it's just crushed grapes in the bottle. And you don't have to know everything. And believe me, you could go for years. Like I went through the viticulture program. I, you know, the science of winemaking, all that kind of stuff. And there's just so much to learn. Um, but I think the, the, the best advice I could ever give to somebody who's coming into the wine field is to not become intimidated. And, you know, follow your passion. And if you, Go to harvest and figure out that it's too hard of work, then it, this might not be the journey for you. Because physically and um, and um, physically and mentally, it's it's like I say, it's, there's a lot of competition and a lot of work. Harvest, you got like 24/7. Um, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what were the what, what were the biggest challenges for you in selling wine? What, what, what do you find the biggest challenges are? What do you find the biggest selling points are? I'm going to speak from representing the small Oregon brands. Um, almost all the wineries in Oregon are producing less than 5,000 cases a year. So many people that have come to Oregon. Um, I, I think they had this really grand vision of, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to retire on a vineyard and we're going to make the best Oregon Pinot, we're going to make the greatest wine and, you know, they write out this business plan and, and they come with millions and millions of dollars just to even get going, you know, to buy the property and then, you know, planting, it's very expensive and then really you've got at least four years of your finances tied up before you even get your first harvest. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, now it's time to go to market and, and try to sell our, our wines and compete against all these other incredible Pinots. But they also um, have to understand they're competing with wines from Italy, from France, California, uh, lots of affordable 
quality wines. Whereas Oregon, I mean, we're very unique. We are extremely small. We're hand-picking. Almost everybody's still hand-picking. It's very labor-intensive. And so price-wise, we can't we can't even hardly compete with, you know, you know the, the mass-produced, the, you know, grapes that are being picked by machine. Um, so, yeah, I, was, I would have to say representing Oregon wines, um, even though we are in the state of Oregon and people are, they love to support local, um, but it really, you know, financially sometimes you can't always get the um, best Oregon wines. Um, so I, I want to say that's probably one of the, the hardest things is, is competing with so many brands out there. You know, as a distributor, you're fighting for shelf space, you're fighting for menu space, you're really fighting for glass pour. Um, because, you know, if you get a wine uh, served in a restaurant, usually you've got a list and as a customer, you've only got a few choices. Um, and you're gonna try brands like these that you've probably never even heard of and then you have it at a restaurant with the food and and then you go wow you know i'm gonna either go to the winery and find it or i'm gonna try to find it in a store but um yeah so getting those glass pours is just it's really tough but that's where the brands really are going to be built and when you're representing these types of brands, what do you find is the number one like attractive part? What what, what sells wine? What, what what gets people on board with these brands? Um, and this is something that uh, a a winery usually does not like to hear from a distributor. But really, what sells their brand is the owner, the winemaker. Uh, years ago, I spoke at the Oregon Wine Symposium, and the topic was. Um, distributor supplier relation often the winery the supplier looks at their distributor as their marketing agent the word distributor means we move product from point A to point B there's a lot of moving pieces that a distributor has to do um, and so um, you know that's it's it's that's what sells it is the people is the story now when I was a supplier rep working with the Ola Hills um, I did their national marketing and I did a lot of work local and I would have to say one of the hardest things is, is if you go out and you just start knocking on doors uh, it, it's hard to meet the right decision maker it's hard to find out the do's and don'ts. There's a lot of um, restaurants and wine shops and retailers uh, where the buyers absolutely will not see you without an appointment. And I get that. I mean, these, these buyers are busy. And they have, a lot of times you would show up with your wine, your bag full of wine, and you get there and there's eight wine bags lined up in front of you. And by the time the buyer has tasted through all these different wines and then they taste yours, they have palate fatigue. And so those are the things that are really tricky. But again, a really good supplier rep or, or somebody from the, the winery um, to just keep going out. You have to keep going out. And that's why I say when it comes to the distribution side, whether you're self-distributing, have a marketing agent, or you have a distributor doing it, you just have to keep going out and telling the story and telling the story. It's kind of like uh, back in the day, um, again, with the Ola Hills, uh, this is way before COVID, uh, where it was much easier to go into a retailer or a restaurant and, and do a wine demo. 
Uh, back uh, in November and December, those are really big wine purchasing months. People are celebrating, they're getting gifts. And I can't tell you, for eight, almost nine straight years, in those months, I would be out, there was times I would do three demos in a day. And you're telling that story over and over. And you feel like a broken record, but every time a customer would come to you, you've got to understand that they've maybe never heard of you. They've never heard the story. And it's you that has to compel them to even want to sample your wines and then to buy your wines. I mean, you're hoping they will. Um, and if they don't buy the wine that day, that's okay. Hopefully they come to your vineyard. That, you know. So yeah, I mean, you just have to keep telling your story. And when somebody says, oh, but I have the best Pinot, I just have to laugh. I've got to, I mean like, you better practice your pitch better. Because we all have some great Pinots here. But you really, really, really have, and yes, you're live certified, great. Yes, you're salmon safe. Yes, you're biodynamic. But you've got to tell us more and then keep showing up. And that's why I say, you know, I look at the whole, you know, from the farming, the, the, the winemaking, um, to the, the marketing, and I feel like that, it's, the marketing is just, it's, it's, it's year round. If you're a winemaker, usually come January, you're off in Hawaii, you're in Italy, you're gone for a month, because that's your only time to breathe. Um, but the, the distributors are out there knocking on doors. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's fun, it's tough. <laughs> you have to be an extrovert, um, you have to have a lot of energy, and you have to be able to take no quite often. You know, not because your wine isn't good, it's just there's no shelf space or, you know, they're not changing their list or whatever, so, yeah. You talk about being out there and telling your story. What, what, what about, what stories resonate? What, what, what about the story and what kinds of stories tend to get people sales? I think the best way to answer that is that when, like if you came up to me and I had never met you, I'm going to start trying to pull questions out of you. Like, what do you usually enjoy drinking? Do you like white wine, red wine, sparkling? And your answer may be, well, I, I don't really know anything about wine. So my next question would be, do you drink your coffee black? Do you drink it with cream? Do you, you know, so I would try to pull out and try to figure out where you're at in your wine journey so I could make a good recommendation. And you know, when I say, do you like your coffee black? Well, great, you're probably gonna like this big old Cab Franc or this Cabernet or this Petit Syrah. Um, if you are adding a lot of sugar in your coffee, I'm gonna be like, here's a really nice uh, Riesling, not an off dry Riesling, but a sweet Riesling or maybe a late harvest Riesling. Um, or if I'm talking to you and I could feel you're throwing some words out like, well, what's the RS? What's the residual sugar? Or what's the ABA? Where's that coming from? Then I'm going to kind of walk with you, but I'm not going to intimidate you because, again, I feel like people just get so intimidated about wine. Um, and that's not what you want to do. Wine is not, I'm going to use this word from my dear friend's naked winery. It's, wine is, take the peck sniffery out of it. 
Wine is fun. And, you know, speaking of um, Naked Winery, I absolutely love their marketing approach. There's been a lot of people in the Oregon wine industry in the beginning when they came into the market weren't really thrilled about the marketing. But, you know, I had said this numerous times, just like Riesling and sweet wines, it's kind of like the gateway. Whereas I really feel like, because um, Oregon has always had kind of an image of really high-end, boutique, a little bit, maybe a little snooty. And they're like, no, 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 we're gonna take the practice, we're gonna make it fun, we're gonna make catchy labels. They brought a lot of young, beginning drinkers into the segue. And so, I mean, I give them kudos for that. I think it's wonderful. Go Naked Winery. <laughs> what was the, for you personally, what was the biggest shift from being a buyer to being a seller? What did you, what was different about the work you had to do and what did you kind of remember from your days as a buyer that maybe you brought with you to the other side? Yeah, so I always try to put myself in the opposite person's shoes. Uh, most often my approach would be going into the store or the wine shop or the or uh, the restaurant and going and patronizing and kind of seeing what what their clientele looked like, um, uh, see if there was any holes in the menu, meaning you know maybe they had tons of Pinot Noir, but they didn't have any cab. Um, so I would try to understand their business so then when I finally did get to meet them in person, they really understood that I, I, I care about your business. I am not a person who wants to just come in and do a one and done. If I sell you something that isn't gonna move off the shelf or through your restaurant, then you know, I mean, that, that's not going to do anybody any good. And, you know, unfortunately, you see that quite often um, in, in some of the distribution models. Is, is This month you have these brands you have to focus on. Next month, you know. But, you know, for me, it was like know and understand what that buyer is going through. Be respectful and do what you say you're going to do for them. If you say, hey, look, you, you buy, you know, take a, a floor stack. I will be here on this day. I will do a demo. And if I can't pull through a bunch of wine, I'll come back next month and do a demo. So I think, you know, the shift, just understanding all, all sides of the party is very good. You mentioned all the changes in distribution. I want to talk about distribution a little bit because yes. it's always kind of, I think for me, it's mentioned for you all, that it's kind of a mysterious place. Like there's this notion of distribution, but what does that mean? So when you started in distribution, what kind of, what, what were the initial things you had to learn? What were the biggest, like, this is what distribution is, this is what my job is, this is what my role is. And how did that change as you, as you changed and as the, the model changed? Um, when I first got into it, and I'm definitely uh, aging, dating myself, um, that was back in the day when Gallo put together a three-inch, three-ring notebook, about this big, and as a uh, distributor rep, that's your first thing of homework. You would study all of it, and it was very much, you walked in, it was suit and tie, it was the briefcase with the feather dusters. Uh, now, as you can see, um, we're farmers, we're a lot more relaxed, dressed to the way, of the people that you're gonna work with. Um, so I've seen things relax that way. I've seen the approaches uh, become very different, um, but then fast forward to the distribution model of which that we have at Bitcourt. Um, we've, we've seen the importance of getting food and wine to the end consumer. Distribution is not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do it, it's just there's a lot of 
humans that are, you know, whether they're harvesting, making the wine, putting it in the warehouse, getting it on the truck. There's just so many moving parts there. So we created um, the artificial intelligence to be able to eliminate some of these things, cutting our cost, therefore the wholesale is much less expensive, and creating a format where restaurants, which is all we cater to, is small uh, brands and, and uh, northwest kind of foodie restaurants, what we have done is taken away um, allowing them to not have to have minimums, meaning that a lot of the di big distributors, because their marketing, their, their model is different, and I get that. Um, you know, a lot of these restaurants have to pay 350, they have to order $350 worth of product to even get a truck to show up. Um, they uh, charge what they call broken case fees, meaning if you don't buy the whole case, they're gonna charge an extra dollar for every bottle that's not, so the price is going up. Um, and they will only deliver uh, on certain days of the week. So our model is different. We have no minimums, we have no broken case fees. We deliver seven days a week. And why that is important is because you're in a COD state, which means that when the alcohol is arriving at a restaurant, they have to pay for it right then and there. So cash flow, and then also most restaurants don't have a huge space to, to, to store the product. So that's where our model comes in, and a lot of these restaurateurs, especially now that COVID's happened, I mean, the cash flow is so important to them. Um, so yeah, it's been really an interesting, and, and Bitcork started from three amazing um, entrepreneurs out of Eugene, and they would go to all these wonderful foodie restaurants, and their background is tech, which is why we're called Bitcork, kind of like Bitcoin. But they would go to all these great restaurants, and every single wine list was the same wine. And they were like, wow, we're sitting here in the middle of wine country, and there's hardly any Oregon wine by the glass. So this is where the mission started, and they're just like, wow, we've got to fix this. And they sold off all their companies, and here we are now. And with COVID happening, um, it's really ramped us up because now we're also um, um, helping the food distribution chain as well. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an ever-changing, evolving, but we all know people got to eat and drink, so let's, let's figure this out, let's be efficient, and um, you know, not keep wasting food and wine. <laughs> So, yeah. I'm going to come back to Bitcoin because I have more questions about it. But I'm yeah. curious before we get to that, um, you mentioned stops along the way. You worked with the Eoli Hills and you worked at Archer Vineyard. Tell me about the kind of you worked with those parts of the industry and what your role was and kind of what you brought what you brought to and took away from those kind of places. Yeah, um, I think it's, this is the answer that a lot of people have that are from the winery side. When you work for a winery, you will clean toilets. You will be in many, if you're a dis, if, if for example, if you're their rep that goes into other states, you'll be on airplanes a lot, you'll be in hotels a lot, you'll be speaking in front of large uh, um, sales teams, you'll be doing uh, charity events. You know, there is so many things that are glamorous about the job, and those are some of the fun things. And for any Linfield College students out there that are young, I think that's a really good time to get out there and do the marketing before, you know, you're getting all settled down and you own a house and you've got kids. Or, you know, go see the world on somebody else's dime, so to speak, and, you know, you're going to learn so much 
much more about the wines as well, especially working trade shows. Because usually at the end of the trade show, all the supplier reps are, you know, sharing each other's leftover samples, and and it, which can be dangerous because um, I always say, uh, being in this industry, it is certainly not a get rich. Um, you have a champagne taste because you've tried all these really good wines, but you're on a beer budget. Uh, but again, it is um, there's a lot of great things about this industry, but again, not to get rich. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so now we're in 2021, and I do see a lot more women in the field, um, and we see a lot more female winemakers, too, which I think is really interesting, especially when women tend to have a better um, sense of taste and smell. So, you know, making wine, that's very important. But, um, yeah, again, I think in the beginning it was so much, you know, because it is physical labor. You know, a case of wine is 35 up to 52 pounds. Um, half barrels, we're seeing, we're seeing wine in barrels now. Um, six barrels a lot of times. Um, so, you know, I think, it, it, you know, when I say that, it was more because of the physical aspect of the job but we're you know I mean you can handle a keg you just have to figure out how to roll it around and get the, the ham truck under and you can do it and then you know a lot of times if you're in a restaurant and you're a lady if you bat your eyes usually you can get a gentleman to come help you if you're struggling with a keg <laughs> or you get your driver to deliver all those kegs for you in the perfect scenario. But once in a while, you have to do what we would call a sales take. The, the, the salesperson has to do a special delivery. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, beyond, beyond that, I'm curious, was there, were there any other, what, what else did you learn along the way? What were some of the tricks of the trade and what were some of the things that you kind of maybe learned, maybe you learned a tough lesson or, or, or learned an interesting lesson along the way on the distribution side? I would have to say um, play nice in the field. I saw a lot of um, what I felt unethical things go on in the market, and I've always when I'm when I've trained people, I've always said, you know, this industry distributors change brands, being that it's non-franchised. Um, buyers change. You'll probably change. You'll probably go to different distributors. You know, and so to me, I've always said, you know, play fair, be ethical. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Follow through, because you don't know who you're going to be working with tomorrow or the next day. Um, so I, I would have to say that's probably the best thing that I learned is just, you know, I mean, be true and, and be ethical. And if you see somebody pulling your shelf tags off to put their wine there, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> it happens. It is a kind of a crazy industry. 
Yeah, it's it's competitive. <laughs> it's very competitive. You guys are getting the, the good and the bad. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, speaking specifically of, of, of Viola Hills, I know you, you spent quite a bit of time there. So how did your role evolve there, and what did you what what did you bring to Viola Hills, and what did you kind of how did you see them evolve as you were there? Yeah, so that's super fun. Um, I had I, I lived in the Lake Oswego area, and then chased up my heart to Dallas, which Viola uh, Hills is in Rick Real, so very close. And I um, wanted to keep my pulse on the, the wine industry, so on the weekends I worked in the Eola Hills tasting room, and I'd already had a lot of wine experience, um, but uh, so I, I started working in their tasting room, and I probably worked in the tasting room for six months before I met Tom Huggins, one of the main owners of Eola Hills. And um, apparently when he would show up to work on Mondays and he would look at the, the Saturday and Sunday wine sales, He's like, who is this girl? Who's who's this girl in my tasting room? And then all of a sudden he looks up my resume. And I had a business resume and I had a restaurant resume and he's looking through this. And then, you know, fast forward a few months later and there was a position that opened up for uh, doing the national marketing. And I thought, well, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I'm single and I'm young and I don't have any cats. And, you know, so, um, so that's really how it changed. But even though that was my title at the time, you know, still helping with the Sunday brunches. I mean, we'd get up to 600 people on Mother's Day. Uh, we did a lot of um, concerts there. Michael Allen Harrison, Julianne Johnson. We, you know, we did everything that we could because Rick Real, to be clear, is not like the biggest metropolitan city. So we had to be really creative and um, get people from Portland, get people from Salem, get people from Eugene. We would do, you know, bike rides through wine country. Uh, like I said, we'd do all the brunches. We would do yoga on the vineyard. We do all these things. And then when we got people out to Rick Real and they had our wine and they met us, then we had a long-term customer. So there was a lot of things evolving there. and. You know, even to this day, I say you have to think outside of the bottle. This is a changing all the time. When you think you've got it figured out, it's and like COVID. <laughs> be Gumby, just be flexible. <laughs> yeah. What do you, as you as you look at that, especially you mentioned like Rick Real, not 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 what people think of as wine country, and not and not a big population area. What, as you look back at your contributions to Yola Hills, what are you proudest of from what you brought to them? What, what, what did you do to help them? Oh my gosh, I would have to say literally seven days a week. I worked so much and did so much of their private label wine. Um, I, at, for over a year, I literally lived at the winery. We had a place where the interns would come from Italy or France or Germany. Um, it was kind of a flat and uh, it became vacant. So I'm thinking, well, I'm on the road all the time and I'm working all the time and I'm telling this story all the time. So, you know, it was really interesting because then I, I got back into, you know, you know, you get more involved with harvest and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so I would have to say that was probably my biggest is, I, I mean, I, I put so much into it so much into it because I, I loved it. I was so passionate about it. But uh, work-life balance is important too. <laughs> so, yeah. There raises a question for me of, of being that passionate about something. Uh, how do you 
and you're telling the story over and over again. You're telling the same story over and over again. How do you keep that fresh? How do you keep it from being rote? How do you keep yourself passionate about something when you're telling that to the same different people all the time? Yeah, because you feel like a broken record after a while. Um, yeah, you kind of mix it up a little bit. Like I say, when I could pull a little bit of information from the consumer of which I was in front of, I'd kind of tailor my words to their style. Um, so then again, it would kind of change, you know, how I would speak about it. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I would do. Yeah, um, and I and I, for, I forgot to mention after the only reason why I left Eola Hills is um, there's a, a company called um, Pioneer Packaging, and they had just gotten into the the bottles and the wine packaging, and through several different wineries the owner of the company heard my name and he kept calling me up and saying hey do you want to come work go you know be the person who sells to all these wineries and I'm like oh I'd love to but you know I'm, I'm you know Eola Hills is like my family and he just kept upping the ante and upping the ante and upping the ante and so finally I was like okay like that's really a, a sweet deal um, and this is note to self Linfield College uh, students and other people. You know, the packaging side is more like a Monday through Friday job and really good pay. <laughs> so, but it's a different lifestyle, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about the packaging side. You've you, you basically done everything else at this point. So this is like the first time doing yeah. that. What, what was different about it? What did you enjoy about it? Oh my gosh. It was really interesting because, like I say, that company had just gotten into the packaging side. They had one salesperson prior to myself, and that person did not come from the wine industry. They were from the box industry, because that's how that company started, is moving and storage. And so um, I learned a very valuable lesson. Uh, the first day on the job, when I looked at the sample bottles and I rolled a bottle across the table and it went, doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo, I went, oh my gosh, these bottles are not perfect. And, and the owner's looking at me like, well, what, what's the big deal on that? And I said, when you have a bottling line that goes at high speed, and a lot of wineries don't have their own bottling lines. They have to schedule way out uh, signature bottling or some of these other bottling trucks. If you have glass that has imperfection, it will all, it can all of a sudden have a bottle like jam up the whole equipment and throw glass everywhere. And so here I am the salesperson and I've got about $350,000 worth of lumpy glass that I have to sell. And of course, I want to make sure that I'm selling the best that I can. So I realized I was going to have to look at wineries that are that are hand bottling because that wasn't going to affect the bottling line at all. So that was a really interesting thing. And then now they've perfected all that. They go to China, they um, build their own molds, they build their relationship. So I mean, a lot's changed. And then I also started pitching wine in the keg. And at first people were like, hmm, that, you know, sounds like box wine. Um, I also was one of the biggest people bringing in the stove and the screw cap. Again, people were like, yeah, that's you. But when you look at the, the, the benefits and features, and now in 2021, you're seeing a, there's so much of that packaging going on now. So, but, so I was kind of a little bit before, you know, but anyways, so that's some of the fun stuff that I learned on the packaging side. Pushing, pushing trends. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
I'm curious about that from as you were working with consumers and and with and with wineries on that kind of thing. What were the biggest reservations about that? Because like as you said, canned wine, box wine, keg wine, screw caps, those are all realities now. And and, and so were the were the reservations that consumers wouldn't respect it and they wouldn't pay the price? Yeah, so often I think they looked at the uh, box wines that were from many, many years ago. Um, and they probably got a really bad taste, literally. Um, but when you look at packaging, it's come so far. Even when you look at box wine, a bag uh, inside a box, and there's some of the kegs, the key kegs are that same, where it's literally a bag, the wine comes out and the bag is deflating, or the box wine, the bag is deflating. So no air is getting in there. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Kegged wine um, or screw cap, you're not gonna get TCA, you're not gonna have to worry about that kind of stuff. When you look at the footprints, I mean, glass is pretty heavy, you know? So, I mean, there's so many benefits, but there was that preconceived notion. And Oregon has always been, you know, like I say, boutique. And But then as people really started learning about it, and when you started seeing some of, it only took a few high-end Pinot producers to say, I'm putting a screw cap. And then the trends, you know, people start believing and trusting. But it took a while. It, de it definitely took a while. And I would have to say, like in, in New Zealand, they were way ahead of us. Um, and so it was kind of nice. You know, we saw other countries doing it, and they experimented. And I will have to say, back with the Ola Hills, when synthetic corks came out, we were trying to kind of pioneer the way. Those synthetic corks, super hard to get out. People would break the, the chip the glass, and believe it or not, it would oxidize wine because it, it, it didn't close the wine. So, you know, you kind of want to go out and pioneer, but at the same time, after something like that, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I, that's expensive. So, yeah, so the packaging's changed along the way. It's, it's, been, it's been good. It's been good. Yeah. So I'm curious about you have one other. Uh, we know you have Archer Vineyard in your in your background as well. Yeah. Just about your time your time in your role there. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, Archer and a few other vineyards. I did some consulting and volunteering, uh, but Archer was it was a, a small family uh, vineyard, and they are also a custom crush facility. So some great brands are being made there. Um, and so it was just kind of a role. Uh, uh, the owner's daughter was wanting to get in and, um, and, and, and learn the business and then take over the winery. So that's really what my role was, is to, to help her learn the, the industry. And so it was really fun. Uh, they have great wines. And like I say, there was a lot of other fantastic brands being made there. Uh, but yeah, other brands that I had uh, helped with, um, Yam, or excuse me, Youngberg Hill, uh, Taravina, um, Zerba, uh, boy, there's just been a few along the way, like I say, that I would just consult with um, or just volunteer my time. You know, when I was going through the Viticulture and Enology program, that was about two and a half years. And so, again, you know, it's like, hey, if there's a festival, I can help. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can help. So I did. It was fun. Yeah. For, for a role like you had the one you had at Archer, I'm curious with if you're trying to you're trying to introduce someone to the industry and you're trying to bring them into the industry, what are the biggest things you're imparting? What was the, what were the wisdoms you were uh, telling her that that she needs to know? Yeah, well, there's there's you know there's so many different um, uh, things, and I think the the biggest part is um, when when her role or other people's role are mostly tasting room. Um, and I, I really truly believe that people come to Oregon because of wine country. I think it's super important that if you're that person in the tasting room pouring the wine, it 
you have to learn as much as you can about the vineyard. You have to learn about the winemaking process. You don't have to know everything, but it is on you that you learn and study. Um, you know, and, and if, if, if the winemaker, I mean, a lot of times the winemakers, they're, they're so artsy, they're introverts, and, and sometimes it's hard to get, get them to share their secrets, and sometimes they won't tell you. So if you're trying to be like, you know, well, what oak did you use, or how many months, you know, not all winemakers want it share their their secret um, but it is it's important you've got to learn you are showcasing um, this whole industry and people come from all over and they go back home and they talk about these great wineries they went to and 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 that they play nicely together if you just serve a customer and you realize that maybe you have no Riesling but your neighbor down the street, like, you know, Brooks Winery has all these incredible Rieslings. Tell that tourist or tell that, that guest, hey, you know, it sounds like you really like Rieslings and I highly recommend you go here. Um, and so I think those are the things that, you know, I think are really important for them to learn. And I, like I say, I, I feel like Oregon is so good like that. We play nicely. <laughs> so we promote each other. We are community. We collaborate. And I. I think that's why uh, in 60 years our wines are so good. Um, whether it's sharing secrets in the vineyard, whether it's sharing secrets in winemaking, you know, instead of having to stumble and fall and, and you know, spend time and waste a ton of money, we've really helped each other. And the quality is there. It, it's in the bottle. It, 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 yeah, it's there. Um. So we talked earlier about Bitcork and about sort of the, the mission of it. I'm curious, um, how did you find out about it and what attracted you to, to it? Yeah, that's a great, kind of like uh, Pioneer Packaging. I was not looking for a job. And uh, I know River's Edge, they were one of the wineries. There was a few wineries that were already in the Bitcork portfolio. And the owners, uh, Todd Edmond and Justin Bloom and Jesse Ralston, they just started asking around, do you know somebody in the Portland area that could be a sales rep? And my name popped up a few times. So these guys called me and I said, oh, Bitcork, well, I've never heard of you. And they said, yeah, we're a startup company. We're based out of Eugene. And, and I said, well, if you'd like, I'd be happy to look at your business plan and see if there's any you know, uh, legalities or you know, um, things that you need to look out for. And so I did, I got online and I, and I researched all their other previous companies that they started. And so then we had a long phone conversation and then the next time they came up to, to Portland, uh, we had another really good conversation and at the end of the conversation they said, do you, do you, do you want to come to work for us? And I'm like, uh, uh, well thanks, but I, I'm now with, with, with Columbia, you know, they bought out our, our company, General Distributors. And, so I wasn't looking and then I kept researching these guys and I just, to support small Oregon brands and to support restaurants, I'm like, man, that's really where your heart is. And I like their business model. And so I said, you know, I'm gonna take a leap of faith. I guess this is a startup company. And after they hired me, they said, we didn't even have the venture capital to even pay your salary at that time. And I'm like, well, something told me that this is right. It's what I believe in. And here we are. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. So you talked a little bit earlier about the about the sort of the philosophy of it. You small Oregon brands they can't necessarily handle bigger distribution and kind of cutting some of the some of the costs out of distribution. So tell me about I, I own a small Oregon brand and I want to use Big Cork. What what do I what do I get from it? What do I do? What do I get from it? And 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 how does it how does it work from my perspective? Yeah. So what we would be doing for a small winery, most of which are in that portfolio are less than three thousand cases a year. Um, and even before uh, COVID, it, it's always good to build out your own direct to consumer, your DTC or your wine club, because uh, then you're going to get full retail or retail if you're a wine club, you know, you're obviously you're going to get a discount. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, keep 25% of your wine for distribution. And w what our goal is, is to get these into the nice restaurants um, and particularly get them by the glass because the consumer is going to then find out who you are they're going to then research you and so it's kind of like we're going to hopefully steer business to you and vice versa this restaurant here this uh, Staten Pinot Blanc the winery Staten has had so many calls saying oh my gosh we had this Pinot Blanc at Cafe Newberry it's so good where can I get it well, interesting enough, when COVID hit, um, Cafe Dubarry ended up changing up their business model, where if you go online, they actually have a list of a lot of wines. This is just a small portion. Um, so they've become a retailer too. And a lot of restaurants had to do that. Uh, wine to go, cocktails to go. Um, so yeah, if you go to cafedubarry.com, you're gonna see on, click on their wine marketplace. And so, you know, they could sell a lot of these brands. But yeah, I mean, the winery says, well, you could buy it right there from Cafe Dubarry. And this is a Portland customer, so why go Cordana Eugene and get it? So yeah, it's kind of, it works both ways. You know, it builds the restaurant industry and it builds the brand's, you know, wine club and their, their, their outlets. So yeah. So as Bitcork has grown and will continue to grow, what are the what are the biggest goals and what are the kind of the milestones you're looking ahead to? Well, we are now into the food side of things as well, um, with our technology um, and the more patents that we keep getting uh, and digging in and, and becoming tighter uh, partners with the restaurants. Uh, we are going to that level of which um, I'm going to use this as a restaurant, for example, everything is done by scratch, even their mayonnaise is made scratch, um, they make all their bread by scratch. So when, you, when you're a restaurateur and you're, you're dealing with all these different ingredients, um, obviously that makes your ordering process kind of a nightmare. You're ordering from all these different suppliers. Um, you, you, in a restaurant, you're making, you're, you make your money on on alcohol. The cost of, of food is very expensive. You don't want to order too much. You don't want to be out of anything. You don't want anything to go to waste. So part of our technology is going to be able to help manage these things. You will always know exactly what you have, where, where it is, whether it's in the cooler, the, um, the cold uh, storage, the dry storage. Uh, if you have something getting ready to expire, to go out to use that first. So. Um, it's going to be able to help these people um, manage the front of the house and the back of the house better. So that's been kind of our goal is, is to, to help these restaurants. I mean, it's, it's really tough to survive in this industry. 
also. And unfortunately, with COVID, we've lost about 40% of our, our restaurants in our market. So these restaurants that are making it, it's, yeah, the more efficient they can be, the better. And the less food is wasted. So we talked a bit, already quite a bit about 2020, about COVID and about, so I'm curious, um, as COVID hit, for you personally and for, for Bidcorp, what was sort of the initial reaction to it? And then take us kind of through yeah. the year as, as, you, as you reacted, as you pivoted into other things. Yeah, so I had just been on with the company for about a year and we were growing leaps and bounds. And, you know, the, the market was great. Restaurants were doing well. You know, people, the, the unemployment rate was really low. You know, like I said, the market was wonderful. And our business plan is written all about on-premise restaurants. Well, we know what happened there. So it was very interesting. Um, so we quickly pivoted at that point where we started distributing um, the PPE, the masks, the gloves, uh, thermometers, that kind of stuff. And we were doing this at cost. Again, trying to support these restaurants. These restaurants are getting a little bit of wine from us. They're either getting their masks, they're getting all these things. Um, and so, but, but even to this moment, uh, it's very different. You're not physically going out and seeing your customers. Uh, you're using more technology, you're using more you know, emails, uh, more phone calls, more text messages. So that's where I've seen it change a lot. And I, moving forward, I think we'll probably be a 50-50, meaning you know, that one-on-one that -on -one relationship, and especially sitting with the buyer and sampling the wines, that will always be there. You have to have that. But I think people are going to be a little bit different on how they communicate mm -hmm. moving forward. Mm -hmm. So with a business that's based entirely on getting wines into restaurants, as you mentioned, a tough time for that. So um, as you see the pandemic, as you see coming out of the pandemic, um, what is Bitcork going to return to that it was doing before? And what is it going to kind of keep that, it's, that it made the changes made the last year? What, what are those are going to stick around? Yeah, so um, it's just that we're expanding. Uh, the other side of our business is called um, Pollinate Food. Um, so it, now it's just we're going to be bringing more things to the table. So we're still going to be doing all the wine. Um, the, the PPE will probably go away uh, because there's a lot bigger players out there now. But in the beginning, nobody could get it. And we were fortunate to be able to get it. And, and that was something that the restaurants really needed. Um, so that, that's probably the only thing I see going away. Yeah, is once we sell through, we'll probably be done with that. Yeah. And how did your role personally shift the last year? What, what, what did you do differently or not do? And, and, and as again, as coming out of the pandemic, what is it going to return to or look like coming ahead? Yeah, I, I didn't get to go out and see my, my uh, restaurant friends. And I miss that a lot. You know, you build all these long-term relationships and yeah, but you know, we all had to be sheltered in place. Yeah, so yeah. So as it come out of it, you're expecting to get back to something like oh, that? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'll be knocking on doors. I'm sure I'll get a lot of no's, but you know, it's you have to go back and it's almost restarting the business again. Yeah, it's gonna take a little effort, but uh, we're seeing it, you know, I just opened a, a, there's a brand new restaurant called Takibi on Northwest 23rd, brand new. I just got in there. Um, the Nines has opened back up. We got, you know, just got into their place recently. Um, uh, El Gaucho is opening, is starting, you know, so we're starting to see people, um, but we're also seeing new players, new players, new, new restaurants open. So, yeah. 
So it's just pick up and, you know, pick up where you stopped. We talked to people during the pandemic about sort of where they where they saw the Portland food scene, what, where, what it was going to look like right about now or coming out of. So uh, obviously it was kind of doom and gloom for a while. I'm, I'm curious as you look at it from your perspective, what does it look like now and what do you sort of see it looking like in the next couple of years? Is it better or worse than expected? Yeah, so, you know, the, the food and wine scene brought so much tourism here and downtown Portland is still there's a lot of things boarded up. There's several of our hotels, are, they're not open yet. I think it's gonna take a long time for the tourism to come back, uh, but yet we're still building high-rise condos and uh, buildings, and my guess is that what we're gonna see is uh, a much younger generation that are going to move into these condos that will probably be rented as apartments instead of being sold as condos, uh, because like I say, the building is still going. And I think that we'll see the younger people come into this, um, you know, our downtown city and they'll rebuild it, being that the um, there's a lot of vacancy on restaurants right now, so the leases are really affordable. Um, and I think that some of the restaurants that went away, you're, they're, they're coming out with a new uh, name or a new uh, business model. And I, and I really do believe we're going to see the younger people come in and rebuild our city. You know, it is going to take a while, but I have full faith in that, that that's our future. Yeah, because again, people eat and drink. <laughs> I know I like to. <laughs> what else is there to do during a pandemic? I know, right? I got my COVID curves working. <laughs> so, I'll be glad to get those gone on. <laughs> so, yeah. So you've obviously seen, you have a pretty, pretty unique perspective on Oregon wine. I mean, you've seen it from a lot of angles for, for, for a while. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, uh, biggest changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry. What, what did it look like when you, when you kind of were first familiar with it? And, and what does it look like now? What, what, what are the biggest differences? I think there's about 100 when I started. Now there's about 750 or more. <laughs> That's the biggest difference. <laughs> and we're growing more, uh, uh, you know, we've got about 72 or more. Uh, uh, different varieties of which that we're growing here now. Again, Oregon is not uh, like in other countries where, for example, in France, you know, if, if this is the region, this is what you grow. Whereas here, if you think it's going to grow, then grow it and make it. So, you know, we're seeing more creativity in the wines and experimenting with new wines. So, yeah, not just, we're not just Pinot anymore. <laughs> uh, you talk also about the, the collaborative nature of the industry and the, the something that's always been. Is, is that something you, you have seen change in any way since, as, with the growth? That's a great question. There was a lot of people in the industry that were really fearful of California money coming to, to Oregon. There was, uh, including myself, oops, I've been to Napa and um, I was shocked when I go to a tasting room and they didn't, they, they, you know, I'd ask after tasting their wines, buying a bunch of wine, knowing that that person understands what my palate or my like is or dislikes, uh, and I'd ask the question, well, who do you recommend that I go to? And it always surprised me that they, they wouldn't be very nice about their neighbors. And so a lot of wineries here in Oregon, we were, we were kind of frightened about that, but I'm so thankful. We have seen none of that, um, you know, 
Kendall Jackson and Eugenia Keegan and you know they have been such assets to Oregon and I'm I, I really believe who we are in Oregon and how we um, collaborate and work together I think we're gonna stay that way and that's part of our uniqueness and especially people coming in the tourists you know they, they love that they feel that we're honest where we want to share so yeah we're in this together so on that note as you do look ahead for the future of Oregon wine especially coming out of the pandemic um, what will what are the changes you see what is the industry going to look like going forward are, are there things you're excited about or are there things you're fearful of as you look ahead uh, that's a loaded question <laughs> I honestly believe and some of the the numbers show and thank goodness we have a wonderful Oregon wine board that takes care of so many uh, the financial data and that kind of stuff um, Oregonians are drinking a lot more Oregon wine now. The uh, direct-to-consumer, the DTC, uh, the wine clubs have really expanded. Uh, and so I think moving forward, people are, now that they've gotten turned on to these wines and everybody orders online versus say, you know, there for a while, you couldn't even go to a winery. I think that the people are gonna be more loyal to the Oregon wines. Um, and I, you even see it in the restaurants. People are really trying to support these restaurants and their brands. And so I think moving forward, we're gonna, we've got that in our back pockets now. People got turned on to Oregon more so than they were before. What about the, again, from your perspective, you, you've seen a lot of Oregon wine, tasted a lot of Oregon wine. What, what is different about the wine itself now versus the versus earlier, earlier days of the industry? I just think I have more confidence in the wines. I um, mean, when I first got in, there was still a lot of unknowns and experimenting. And back then, 10% of the wines had TCA, even the corks, the industry now, probably 3% of wines. You know, so, so many things have gotten better, you know, from, you know, growing the grapes and the packaging. Um, and of course, every year we have this amazing thing called the Oregon Wine Symposium, and that's a really good educational um, place. But yeah, I just I have so much more confidence in our wines overall. Yeah. What about for yourself as you look ahead? Obviously, you keep you keep finding jobs that you weren't even looking for. But I'm I'm curious as you look ahead for yourself and your own future, what uh, both in wine and outside wine, what are you looking ahead to? Continuing to tell the Oregon story. You know, I mean, it really, I, again, I was born in McMinnville. Um, this is, it is a lifestyle. It's, it's the people. I always tell people, when you get into this, it, it, I mean, you usually don't get out. You make so many friends and um, you eat in incredible restaurants. And for myself, I love to cook. So, you know, it's just a passion. It's a way of life. And I don't foresee myself ever getting out of it. <laughs> Even when I'm retired, I'll still be probably raw, raw Oregon. <laughs> and Washington. We consider them as our Northwest friends for the big reds. <laughs> exactly. Um, is there a role in the industry that you'd like to have that you haven't had yet? Is there a part of the industry you'd like to work in or a location you'd like to work in that you haven't had yet? You know, I'll probably retire being a tour guide. I could do that part-time on the weekends, right? 
That'd be fun. Yeah. You talked earlier about some of your kind of advice or words of wisdom for people about, about uh, getting into the industry. But I'm curious, uh, obviously, with with students like like Tia, who you've met, and people like that. Amazing uh, Tia. Amazing, amazing From Tia behind Saint the camera. Saint Innocence. <laughs> behind the camera here. Um, yes. What uh, what are the, is there any other words of wisdom or advice that you'd offer from for people getting in? I've had so many people ask through my time. Oh my gosh, you know, your job is so glamorous. It looks like so much fun. I want to get in the, how do I do it? And my words of wisdom, I have always said, go do harvest, volunteer, go pick some grapes. And you literally, you're going to figure out if you're cut out for this. Harvest is usually September or October. It's cold, it's rainy, you're drenched. And if you don't like bees, you cannot, you're going to be frightened. You're going to be doing punch down. You're going to be, it's physical. You're going to be climbing up in these huge yaw presses and power washing in between the different, you know, lots of grapes. And, you know, so if you can get through harvest, you're cut out for this. That's, you know, if, if, if you can't, you should maybe look at the packaging side. I don't know. <laughs> or a whole different field. Yeah. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything uh, I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? I think that's pretty much it. I think we've we've covered it pretty much all. Like so, it. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time here today, for setting this up, and of course setting everything else up. And uh, we're looking forward to that. And appreciate you sharing your story with us. And uh, yeah. we'll let you off the hook. Awesome. This has been great. Thanks, guys, and thanks for supporting Oregon and Go Linfield. <laughs>